Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 3. We are doing a study in this book, the eighth book of our English Bible. It's a short book, a short story. We're taking some time going through this, and we are at the latter part of the third chapter in a story that really is revealing God's loving kindness, His redemption, uh, a picture of Christ's love for us as the church and how He has redeemed us. If you are visiting with us today, you're kind of dropping right into the middle of this story. And while you can read the, the t- passage, you can read the entire book in just a little over 10 minutes, less than 15 minutes probably, uh, we've been taking some time to look at it from a cultural perspective and finding applications. Uh, to give you the summary up to this point, you have a, a boy meets girl, boy marries girl, they have two boys, uh, there's an economic downturn that takes place in their country, so they relate, locate to another country, the man dies, the boys get married, uh, they also die, and then the economy gets better in the homeland, so the, the widow is going to return home and one of her daughter-in-laws goes with her because she will not stay behind. Uh, She ends up working in a field. The girl goes out to a field where a man is very generous to her, shows kindness, gives her plenty of food, tells her to stay there for the entire harvest season, which she, she does. And at the end of the harvest season, she asks him to marry her. That's what's happened up to this point. Now, there's a lot more nuance to it. But this is what has taken place. It began as a a tragedy with the the famine, with the deaths, and now seeing how God has provided, and, and we find this taking place. And so there's almost this question, what's going to happen? You know, when it when it comes to discussing marriage, one of the essential points that is often brought out, that is is highlighted very frequently, is the importance of compatibility. How similar are these individuals? How much do they have in common? How much of their background is in common? In fact, online dating services will ask multiple questions to determine compatibility. So I found it interesting when I came across a a study that, that a group of Harvard mathematicians came up with three questions that they said if people would answer these questions, if two people answered these three questions the same, they were a perfect match. So I thought, well, this is interesting. What are those questions? Here are the questions. Number one, do you like horror movies? Number two, have you ever traveled around another country alone? And number three, do you think it would be fun to chuck it all and go live on a sailboat? Now, I'll tell you, when I... When I th- thought about those questions, I thought this sounds more like the plot line for 48 hours or unsolved mysteries than for compatibility. It sounds to me like you're going to be talking about manner of death and alibi and disposal of the body. So I wasn't real comfortable with those questions. But what I did find interesting is the same mathematicians who created that list 
are the ones who came up with the international online dating site that, that Forbes Health uh, listed as the number one dating site, OkCupid. They listed it ahead of Christian Mingle and Match.com. And they said one of the highlights of that site is the, the match percentage that they could calculate just how closely a, a couple would, would match up by the answers they provided. The, the site claims to be responsible for 50,000 dates per week and over 91 million connections per year. But what's interesting is about 10 years ago, one of the site founders also revealed that they experiment with their users. So in 2013, on Love is Blind Day, they removed all profile pictures. And then they analyzed the interactions between the couples without pictures. And then when the photos were restored, they watched how the conversations that had begun as blind conversations just kind of trickled off. They said in another experiment, they used what they called a, quote, placebo number in place of the original match percentage. And in essence, what they did was they told people who were not a good match that they actually were. And then they noticed how much they ended up liking each other. And the CEO said this of the company, said, quote, when we tell people they are a good match, they act like they are. But isn't it interesting to see how the, the algorithms can be manipulated? You know, the relationship that we find developing in the book of Ruth between Ruth and Boaz, I don't think would have scored real well on a compatibility test. Practically speaking, Ruth and Boaz would have failed on a lot of points because they were so different. They had different cultural backgrounds. They had grown up in different countries. They had different family backgrounds. Boaz was a Jew. Ruth was a Moabitess. They had different religious backgrounds. They had different social classes. He was a wealthy landowner. She's unemployed, really a migrant worker going out to the fields to get food. There was an age difference, apparently. Because Boaz is referring to her as my daughter and, and, and is excited that she's not going after the younger men. And they had different marital status. He was single, she was a widow. And while those are significant hurdles to overcome, and there is a validity to the importance of compatibility, a lasting relationship is more than just compatibility. There has to be a commitment, there has to be character. And Christ-like character that is exhibited in a covenantal relationship for the glory of God provides a solid foundation for a relationship. You know, in, in marriage, we speak of it as a covenant, a, a covenant of companionship. And the term covenant is more than just a, a, an emotional commitment or convenience. It, it goes beyond that. You know, much of what our culture looks at as love is, is based on emotion and often a consumerism. What's in it for me? You know, many relationships today are built on consumerism. What can I get out of it? Friendships, what can they do for me? Church membership, what can they give me? Marriages. And yet from a biblical perspective, a relationship involves much more of a commitment, a covenant to invest in the lives of another person. 
to be selfless. And that's really what we see, that, that biblical love is showing a greater concern for another person than the concern we have for ourselves. That's Christ-like love. That Christ gave himself for us. That, that biblical love is rooted in a commitment. It's manifested in faithfulness. And it's strengthened by having the right character, a Christ-like character. And we see that help in relationships across the board. That in a healthy covenantal relationship, there's going to be two people that are committed that, to the well-being of another person. And that's what we find in the book of Ruth. As I mentioned, Ruth is written as a short story. It's, it's written to build to a climactic conclusion. And, and as you read the story, there is emotion, there is tension that, that if you weren't familiar with the storyline, if you didn't know how it was going to end, you would wonder what's going to happen next. You know, the deaths in Moab, what's going to happen? They come back and, and, and then Ruth meets Boaz. What, what's going to happen Harvest ends. She goes to the threshing floor. She, she, she asks if he would step in to do the role of a kinsman redeemer and marry her. How's he going to respond? And he's excited, and then he says, but there's a nearer kinsman. What's going to happen? This is, this is what we find. This is how it's taking place. And it's bringing us to this. But as we've come to this latter part of chapter 3, there's a number of characteristics, of, of character qualities that I think are, are very practical for our observation that I want us to consider this morning. If you have your Bibles open, follow with me. I'm going to begin reading in verse 10. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Ruth chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after the young men, whether rich or poor, poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now, it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, do not let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Also, he said, bring the shawl that it is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, these six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into your word this morning, we pray that we would see your hand, your working, your grace and mercy, and that we would strive to develop the, the lives of character that would bring honor and glory to you. We would pray that if there's one here that does not know you as their personal Savior, that they would see your love and grace as exhibited in the life of Boaz, but that they would see it in Jesus Christ and trust him alone for their salvation. 
For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. What I want us to consider this morning from this passage is that lasting relationships develop through the godly character and sacrificial commitment of the couple that really brings honor to the Lord. You know, Ruth and Boaz have demonstrated personal character as their story develops, and and this is instructive for us. But I also want us to understand that as we consider these points, that it ought to challenge us to strive to grow. You know, one, one of the challenges of looking at the ideal and just kind of bullet pointing through as we're going to this morning is, and sometimes we can say, well, you know, I failed in so many areas. I haven't done well. And what I want us to encourage us is, is this is not to discourage us to give up, but rather to encourage us to strive for growth. Rather than look at past failures and despair, we ought to move forward with a determination. Because we're going to see that there's a number of things that we can implement in our lives. The first thing that I want us to see, though, is that there was a spiritual foundation. We see that in verse 10. And he said to her, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. You've shown this kindness. That, there, that Boaz's first outpouring is a response in a spiritual context. What we see is that there is, first of all, there has to be a commitment to the Lord. You know, foundational to a God-honoring relationship is a relationship with God. And otherwise, we're just going to, it's going to end up being moralism. It's going to be, we're, we're trying to go through the motions, and we're going to be frustrated. There has to be that inner life. You know, if you want a marriage that honors the Lord, be a person that honors the Lord. Find a person that honors the Lord. This was Ruth. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, she said, Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. That she was going to follow the God of Israel. That to have that relationship with Naomi's people, it was going to be built on her relationship with the God of Israel. And so a spiritual foundation is vital for spiritual unity, for compatibility in the spiritual life. As I've mentioned, 2 Corinthians 6.14 speaks of do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And, and then there's several points that follow that use words like fellowship and in common, in agreement, and concludes with verse 15, what part has a believer with an unbeliever? That at some point there's going to be a disconnect in that spiritual compatibility. And that's really what those verses are telling us. Several years ago, and it was a, a December evening, I was sitting at the kitchen table with a man who had been attending our church for almost a year in, in Maine, and he had listened. He had asked a lot of questions. He would stop me after the Sunday morning service and say, if I'm hearing you, you're saying this, and I, I don't agree with that. And we'd go out to eat. He had read a lot of things. He had studied God's Word. And, and his wife had been praying for his salvation for years. And that evening, I had the privilege of seeing him trust Christ. As we sat there, as he prayed, and tears were streaming down his wife's cheeks, because this had been her prayer for that spiritual commitment, that that commonality there. And I say that I share both the verses and the illustration to provide a caution to those who are single and the hope to those who are married that, that we would seek the salvation of a spouse. That we understand that. Now, please understand, I've known some unsafe spouses that, that, you know, put professing Christians to shame in their kindness, their patience, their concern, their, their parenting. That, but there's always that, there's going to be a lack when there's not that life. 
There's a lack of spiritual oneness. And so we want to encourage that, that that for believers to have the covenant of love before Christ, we have to have a love for Christ. We have to be compatible in that way to really see that grow. But also understand there's a great lack of compatibility when Christ saved us. How compatible are we as the bride of Christ? And to see his love for sinners like us. I would say as well, we see in this, there's a commitment to the spiritual well-being of others. Boaz had a concern for others. The very first words we hear him speak, we read of him speaking, are the Lord be with you. Back in chapter 2, verse 4. He had a concern for the spiritual well-being of his employees. And, and, And that's an important aspect of our spiritual life. And many of you share prayer requests. For co-workers, for friends, for connections that you have in that aspect. That, that part of that spiritual foundation is living with an investment idea for eternity. And so there's a concern for the spiritual well-being of others. Man, I, would, I think we need to take the moral leadership in relationships and see that and, and help our families. And, and single men, you need to be the moral leaders in your co-ed relationships. Married men, we have to stand for godliness and truth, and we have to do it in the right spirit with a servant's heart in a wicked world. That's the culture in which we live. And so the importance of that, that as husbands we would love our wives with a sanctifying love. That's that's how Christ loves his bride, the church. That we would have a purifying influence on those around us. Say, well, how will I know if a person has a spiritual foundation? Well, do they talk about spiritual things? Is there a normalcy in that? How do they respond when their faith is tested? And it will be tested. You know, when it came to, to Boaz, when he came to the field, he wasn't trying to impress Ruth when he said, the Lord be with you to his workers. He had a genuine interest in the spiritual lives of his co-workers. And, and we see that, that, that understanding he saw them as more than servants, he saw them as souls. Do we see God's working in the lives of others? Do we focus on that and seek to encourage that? So there's a spiritual foundation. The second one, though, I think we see is a gentle spirit. In in verse 11, it says, Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you request. There is a compassion. There is a calmness in Boaz's response to Ruth that, that she has just put herself in a very vulnerable situation. She has come to the threshing floor at night unknown, and now she's revealed herself to Boaz and, and in essence, asked if he would consider marrying her as the kinsman redeemer. That could go wrong in so many ways. There are just so many what-ifs. You know, what if he rejects her? What if he just tells her to leave, to get out of there? What, what if he, you know, he blows up and, and, and denounces her? I mean, there are so many bad possibilities. But we don't see that in Boaz. The emotional tension she must have felt at that point, and Boaz very immediately puts those fears to rest. Do not fear. He speaks tenderly, my daughter. That's a a term of tenderness there. And really what we see is an attitude of humility. You know, humble people want to act like Christ instead of focusing on themselves. And that doesn't come natural to any of us in our, our sinful state. But gentleness is, a, is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, and it ought to be displayed in the life of the Christian. 
Colossians 3 verses 12 and following indicate that a person with spiritual life will, will put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, patience. You know, I think we see that in both Boaz and Ruth. Ruth did not have an entitlement mentality. She was a thankful person. Proud people are ungrateful because they think they deserve it. What they get is like, well, yeah, I deserve that. A humble person is gr- a grateful person. We, we see in Ruth, she's a teachable person. I mean, she's, she's been married, and yet she's listening to counsel. Proud people are not teachable people. They tend to be defensive. They shift blame. They resist authority. They're disrespectful. They, they seek independence or to be in control. They, they, they're very vocal in sharing their opinions and preferences because they think theirs matters more than anybody else's. Humble people have a teachable spirit. They're swift to hear and slow to speak. They're, they're good listeners. They look for opportunities to serve. They're quick to forgive because they know what God has forgiven them. And they trust the Lord to work. They trust God's character, which helps develop their character. The third thing that we see in this passage, though, is they both have virtuous reputations. Boaz says, for all the people of my town, what town is that? Bethlehem. All the people in Bethlehem know that you are a virtuous woman. And we had looked at chapter 2, verse 1, where it says there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth. And, and the, the word that's translated great wealth there is the male equivalent to virtue. He was a, he was a man of valor, a man of virtue. And, and so we find that it's interesting because the, the word virtuous is used 245 times in the Hebrew Bible. According to one professor, Dr. Yeagley, he said that three of those times it refers to a woman. Proverbs 12, verse 4 speaks of an excellent wife. Proverbs 31, verse 10, which speaks of a virtuous wife. And Ruth 3, verse 11, that you have that testimony as a virtuous woman. We've been going through this. Pastor Nathan had mentioned that in the Hebrew Bible, it's laid out differently than our English Bible. And the book that follows Proverbs in the Hebrew Bible is the book of Ruth. So Proverbs ends with the description of the virtuous woman, and the next book is an example of a virtuous woman, and it's Ruth. And she's not Jewish. She's a Moabite. And so to see that example, and they both had noble character, but I want us to to understand something else. In this story, it's worth noting that we know nothing about the past of either Ruth or Boaz. You know, we might speculate that Boaz grew up in a a God-fearing home with a solid teaching, but we don't know that. We're not told that. Remember, it was the time of the judges. People are doing what's right in their own eyes. We do know that Ruth grew up in a pagan country where the God of the Bible was not worshipped. You know, I think it's important because we read, oh, here's this godly woman, but we know nothing about her past. I'm pretty sure she didn't win the Timothy Award in her Awana Club. You know, she never went to camp on a scripture memory scholarship. She didn't graduate from a Christian school or, or be recognized for spiritual leadership. I doubted she was most voted most likely to marry an Israelite. And and if she did have religious involvement, it was most likely to a pagan religion because Naomi had actually encouraged her to go back to her gods. 
And so I suspect that Ruth probably did some things in Moab that she would not want recorded in the Bible. Say, why would you say that? Well, she had no Bible. She had no Christian upbringing. She had no youth group. And I, I would think that most of us, all of us, would probably say that we've done things that we don't want recorded in the Bible. And I say this because when we read the Scripture, we see the ideals, we see the example of Christ, and we can say, oh, I have failed. I've failed in the past. Yes, but what are you doing in the present? What, have you, what are you seeking to do to see the Lord honored in your life today? We confess our sin, and we look to the cross. We press on. We know nothing about their past, but both of them are stated to be people of virtue. And Ruth's testimony has just developed over several months by what she's doing. She's just come back with her mother-in-law. And Boaz says, everybody knows, in the months you have been here, that you are a virtuous person. So what are we doing to develop that? And understanding that Christ came to save sinners. And he did that by eating with sinners and dying for sinners. You know, he ate with people who had significant moral failings and were covetous and materialistic. And that was the accusation against him. He's eating with prostitutes and tax collectors. These are not good people in the minds of the Jews. You know, when we read of the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, we read nothing of her past either. She is honored for her fear of the Lord and her commitment to her family. So don't allow Satan to defeat you by continuing to bring up the past that's under the blood. Ruth is honored for her commitment to God, the God of Israel. And it was displayed in her concern for others, her mother-in-law, her upright character. So let us strive to develop a virtuous reputation as well. The fourth thing that we see in this passage, though, is there was an open and honest communication. They were honest in how they communicated. It says, you know, I find it fascinating after Boaz says, this is great, I would love to marry you. He says, but there's a closer relative than me. He's expressed his delight Ruth is interested in him. He's interested in her. This is great. And then he says, but you know what? I, I have to tell you something, and this could be a deal breaker. Do you think that information caused any emotional turmoil for Ruth? She's, she's already gone out on a limb. She's made herself vulnerable to at, by asking Boaz if he would consider being the kinsman redeemer and marrying her. He says yes. She's excited, and now he says, but there's a problem. Now what? And what I find interesting is with Boaz is he didn't hold that information back. You know, I, I think he could have probably found an expert in the law at that time that would have helped him argue that it didn't really apply in his situation. Well, yes, that was back then, but we're quite a far ways removed from that. And, you know, different, different, you know, different rabbis interpret the passage differently. And, and so here's what, and, and pick the rabbi you want. Well, remember, this is the time of the judges. Everyone did what is right in their own eyes. I think Boaz could have found a religious leader to validate his position. I mean, if you want to know what it was like in the time of the judges, read Judges 17 and 18. You find a Levite who was a priest who makes his own idols and he becomes a private priest for hire. 
That's the story. I think Boaz could have found somebody like that. I'm sure he could have found friends or peers who would tell him, well, Boaz, you just need to follow your heart. I mean, you, God wants you to be happy, doesn't he? Ruth will make you happy. Forget the law. Follow your heart. You know, whatever makes you happy, be true to yourself, Boaz. Have we heard any of those arguments? How easy it is to argue away from Scripture instead of submitting to God's Word. You know, when Ruth returns home, we see the openness of her communication. She goes to her mother-in-law, and she told her all that the man had done for her. You know, Naomi said, is that you, my daughter? It wasn't that she wondered who this was coming. It's like, well, tell me what happened. How did it go? And Ruth didn't just say, fine. Didn't get a lot of sleep, but it was pretty good. No, she told her everything. There's an openness here. The communication with her, her mother-in-law, that openness would now serve well in marriage. And, and understanding that as believers, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4.15, we're to speak the truth in love. Not only do we speak the truth, we have the right motivation. The motivation is that it will build up, that it will edify. It goes on further and says in verse 25 of Ephesians 4, put away lying, let each speak the truth to his neighbor. We have to speak the truth to solve problems because people can't read our minds. And we need to do it with the goal of solving problems. Failure to speak the truth is failure to obey God's Word. A fifth thing that we see, though, is there's a steadfast integrity. I think it's interesting. If you look at verse 13, Boaz says, Stay the night. In the morning it will be if he performs the duty of the cl close relative. Good. But let him do it. But if he doesn't, then I'll do this. And then it says that, he, that she lay at his feet until morning. Boaz, his response is one of principle. And we see that in the steadfast integrity that there's a principled response. You know, Boaz has already shared his emotions. He's excited. He wants to marry her. But he's willing to subordinate his emotions and his feelings to what is right. That's, a, that's living by integrity. That's living by principle. That he is willing to obey the Lord rather than follow his heart. You know, when you read this statement, what you're reading is Boaz is, will, is actually saying, I am willing to remain single and not marry the girl that I want to marry if it goes against the law. And on Ruth's side, she's willing to abide by that. She wants to marry Boaz. There's another relative in the, the picture here, and she's willing to wait for the decision of the authorities of the city. She doesn't say, well, Boaz, it's you or nobody. No. She, you see in both of them, they are principled people. They're, they're living by integrity. And understanding that she's willing to wait, that, that a person who will do what is right in spite of their personal feelings is a person of integrity. Are we, are we motivated by emotion or by what God's Word tells us? You know, how much are you willing to love for the sake of the one you love? Are you willing to sacrifice emotion, freedom, time, resources? That's a biblical love. But not only is this a principled integrity, it's a pure integrity. And we see that in verse 14. It says, so she lay down at his feet until morning. 
Now, I, I personally doubt that either of them got much sleep that night. I, I, you know, you're outdoors, and I, I think it, Boaz was probably planning, okay, I have to talk to this relative. How do I present this? What's the best way to approach this situation? To give him the information he needs and, and to, to lay it out. And, and I, th- I think Ruth has probably got a whole list of what-ifs. And if it's not that, she's probably planning her wedding. Maybe one of those two is what I'm thinking. But you know, there's a purity in this picture. She's laying at his feet. That, that as people of integrity, they're not participating physically before their vows. And understanding that a man of integrity will, will not demand your body before he declares his vows. A woman of integrity will not use her body to manipulate the heart. And I know that contradicts our culture. But physical intimacy was God's idea. And he placed it in the bounds of marriage, not to prohibit us from something that's pleasurable, but to protect something that's precious. Because within the bounds of marriage, sexual intimacy is not to impress or entice or or for the hunt, it's to unite. And there's a vulnerability that's focused on the, the joy of the spouse rather than the passion of conquest. And understand, that is God's will for us. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, God's will for you is that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Boaz is willing to do that. And, and Ruth is as well. Boaz then tells her to leave before she can be recognized. Doesn't want any question raised about their purity. And I think it's important to understand as well that, that privacy is not the same as duplicity. Confidentiality is not dishonesty. You know, in America, we have the idea that inquiring minds want to know. That's not a Bible verse. And it's often nothing more than sinful snooping in our society. You know, we don't need or have a right to know everything we might want to know. There is a voyeuristic culture in our, or climate in our culture that is unhealthy to spiritual growth. And we need to be careful about that. You know, are, are we more curious about God's Word than worldly gossip? Because the Bible warns against tale-bearers, busybodies, gossips, those who stir things up. I, you don't see that with Ruth and Boaz, but he's very careful to protect her reputation. The sixth thing we see is there's a, a sacrificial generosity. Before she leaves, he says, now bring the shawl that, that is on you and hold it. And, and so she does that and he measures out the, the six measures of barley and, and lays it on her and so she can take it into the city. And then he says to her, now take these to your, to your mother-in-law. And he says at the end of verse 17, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. He's not sending her away empty. But he's also, remember Naomi's statement when she came back to Bethlehem? Don't call me Naomi pleasant. Call me bitter, Mara. Because I went out full, I've come back empty. And and the contrast here, she said the Almighty's afflicted her. But what we see is the Almighty is actually providing. And not just food, but there will be a family line. This is the goodness of God. This is the mercy of God. 
And I think from a practical standpoint, you see the character of, of Boaz that it, it's seen in his generosity. You know, if, if somebody is selfish and stingy before you get married, they're not going to change after you get married. And we're not talking about proper stewardship. That's important. Because one of the key problem areas in marriage is finances. But is there a generosity, a willingness to give to the one they love and for the one they love? I, you know, I, I think Boaz is a wise man. So you're going back to your mother-in-law, I don't want you to go without a present. Let me give you something for her. And what he gave her is probably enough to, to last for a couple of weeks, which probably in Boaz's mind, he said, by then we're going to have all this worked out. So he's thinking ahead. But understand that a person who is stingy, controlling and manipulative with finances, that, that's often a, a way of threatening and gaining control. That a spouse like that can, can use security and threaten that security as a way of manipulating. Boaz provided security by his generosity. You don't have to worry what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. And understand, God is a giving God. He gave His Son. He gives richly all things that we can enjoy. He's a giver of every good gift. Is that our heart? Because it really helps us understand where is a person bowing? Because no man can serve two masters. And if they bow at the altar of money, you cannot serve God and money. And understand, and again, I've said, we're not talking about proper stewardship, wise spending. That's, that's important, being frugal, being careful. But we are looking at, is there a generosity? A seventh thing that we see is that there's a patient trust. This is a change, and we're not going to expand on this this morning. I want to talk about this, Lord willing, further next week. But I find it interesting because Ruth has been very active. She's been aggressive. She's willing to go out. She's willing to work. She's appealed to Boaz. And now she comes home and Naomi says, now sit still and wait. That's hard. We're not talking apathy here. But it's, are you willing to trust God to work when you can't? And really what that says, do I trust God with my heart? You know, Naomi is actually giving very biblical advice here. Her counsel is wise. It's, it's trusting the character of God, which is, is helping us see the change in her attitude because she said, well, the Almighty has dealt really harshly with me. Now she's saying you can trust the Almighty. You can trust Boaz as a man of integrity and character. Do we give godly counsel? Do you give biblical advice? Or if somebody asks you, are the first words, well, I think, I feel, rather than, well, God's Word says. Does God's Word come into the picture? Where do you turn for advice and counsel? Because the Bible tells us, happy is the person who does not walk in the advice, the counsel of the ungodly, but delights in the law of the Lord. That's Psalm 1. But understand, we can't share what we don't know. So we have to allow God's Word to direct our counsel, our heart. The eighth one that I want us to see is there's a consistent dependability. Boaz was dependable. So this man will not rest until he's concluded the matter today. He had a reputation that he would follow through. He, he's going to make it happen. 
Romans 12, 11 says, not lagging in diligence, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. 1 Peter 1 talks about, since you've been purified in your souls by obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love, love one another fervently with a pure heart. And then it goes on and says, we're born again, not with perishable or corruptible seed, but that which was imperishable, the word of God which abides forever as we read a little while ago in Psalm 119. Do you see these character traits? Are we seeking to develop them personally? Of spiritual foundation, a gentle spirit, a a, a virtuous reputation, honest communication, a steadfast integrity with with a sacrificial generosity, patiently trusting God to work and work through others while being dependable ourselves. I I think this is a better way of judging the strength of a marriage than figuring out if you want to chuck it all and live on a sailboat. Yes, there's an important aspect to being compatible, but Christian character, commitment to the Lord is foundational. And rather than focusing on compatibility in the relationship, let us pursue character. That we would strive to have a God-honoring life and in our relationships that Christ would be seen. And if you don't know Christ, to understand that God is a giving God. He gave His Son that you can be saved. Because salvation is by grace alone, it is through faith alone, and it's in Jesus Christ alone. It's not in our works. But lasting relationships develop through godly character and a sacrificial commitment for the sake of bringing glory to God. Is that our heartbeat today? Let's pray together.